what, where is Andrew McCarthy in this book? He is barely mentioned. And I have <laughs> is, a big is he your favorite? Is he, do you have an Andrew McCarthy problem? <laughs> I do. Hello, welcome back to the Redfern Book Review. I am your host, Amy Mayer, and today I'm joined by Vancouver author Jen Sukfong Lee to talk about her new book, Superfan. I just want to give you a little background on Jen. Uh, in 2007, she published her debut novel, The End of the East, which shines a light on the repercussions of immigration and the city of Vancouver. And since then, she has been a prolific author. She's written novels, nonfiction, anthologies, a middle grade book, and a poetry book for regular listeners of this podcast called The Shadow List. And I interviewed her uh, last season on episode eight. She's a CBC radio columnist, or was, and she has her very own podcast on all things Canadian and literature called Can't Lit. Uh, but today we're here to talk about Superfan. And so with that, I wanted to say hello, Jen. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Um, so this book, uh, first of all, why don't you give everyone just a little, can you give a little Cole's notes? What is this book about? How would you describe it? Uh, <laughs> What's the elevator? Book? <laughs> <laughs> this book is a uh, memoir and it's about um, my relationship with pop culture and um, how our relationships with the things that we love or the things that we sometimes hate um, actually says a lot about who we are and uh, the choices that we're making and all of that good stuff. So I wanted to start with a bit of a superficial question because the, th- the fun thing about this book, and I think the reason why I would highly recommend it, is you're having a good time on the one level and the other, you are very raw and honest and it kind of weaves in and out and... I think it, anyway, that's what I like. But on a very superficial level, what, where is Andrew McCarthy in this book? He is barely mentioned. And I have <laughs> is, a big Is he your favorite? Is he, do you have an Andrew McCarthy problem? <laughs> I do. And I, and it's like, I just, I actually, I love the book except for that. And I was reading it and there was a, actually a, it's a section of the book where you talk about his archetype. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of, and it was interesting to read about that because I was super obsessed with him, but the sensitive, <laughs> sensitive young white man, yeah. you, you mentioned him later, but barely in passing. So obviously yeah. he wasn't really on your radar. Uh, Andrew <laughs> McCarthy. Okay. Like, let me just qualify this. Um, You're a little bit younger than me. I'm a little young for Andrew McCarthy. I'm going to be quite honest. Oh, <laughs> having, but having said that, so I think my main problem with him is that he was in Pretty in Pink, right? He was Molly Ringwald's uh, uh, yeah. love interest. And then there was Ducky and Annie Potts. And the the thing about that movie, first of all, the dress she makes in the end offends me on so many levels. However, <laughs> the thing about that movie is that you have Ducky, 
and you have uh, the character played by Annie Potts, who are very great, colorful, sort of secondary characters. And it makes Andrew McCarthy look really boring. I mean, and also, what's his face? James Spader is in it. And he's also pretty interesting. I mean, he's evil and gross, but mm. he's interesting. So I then, know. and then, so when Ducky is saying to Molly Ringwald that he loves her, played by John Cryer, uh, why not choose Ducky? He's sweet. <laughs> well, 30 plus year old you would choose Ducky. But before that point, I don't know. But he fits into this archetype. So yeah, he does. Explain, explain this. Uh, is the, yeah. Ethan. Yeah. The sensitive young white man. The, that archetype is like in a lot of, um, a lot of romantic comedies aimed at younger women, you know, teenage girls or women in their twenties, where often these women are given um, options as to what kind of man they want. And there's always a sensitive you know, a sensitive guy and there's a less sensitive guy. Um, and sometimes the movies feature the sensitive young white man as a kind of anti-hero, like in a movie like Pump Up the Volume or even Heathers, if you want um, any of those types of movies say anything. And um, it's the kind of it's the kind of character that I think a lot of young women really start start to fall in love with, because when we're teenage girls, um, sensitive boys are less visible. They're probably quite shy. They're often not playing the sports. They're not the ones who are going to make the most noise at, at any given event. Um, and it seems like that kind of boy is what we actually all internally want, but, you know, not, not present in our lives. So it's a very effective thing when you're writing a movie or writing a book to have a guy like that. But those guys are often deep down inside. They're just as problematic as any other boy, you know? There's yeah, exactly. So what was that like? Cause you, um, interviewed Ethan Hawke and we yeah. him last time but then here you are as a writer and a grown-up and doing this important interview and then you must have been at the same time a little bit wow I can't believe I'm interviewing him I was beside myself because I had written most of that particular chapter that I talk about that archetype boys on film I'd yeah. already written it like most of it and the, um, it was done. And I, there was really not much Ethan Hawke could do <laughs> to change that. Partly because Ethan Hawke is also not his characters, right? They're two different types mm -hmm, of people. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, interviewing him was, if you can imagine, so if you got an opportunity to interview Andrew McCarthy, you would like lose your mind. Like <laughs> it is so strange for somebody that I had watched basically my whole life and had loved my whole life and had actually been critical of also to like be in a zoom room with and have him say my name and like, look me in the eyes and like <laughs> answer my questions. And, and I, I say this to everybody. They always ask me like, did he disappoint you? And I'm like, not at all. He was actually really lovely. And so I, I don't know. We sent a book to him. I don't know if he'll read it. <laughs> I, I bet he will. Oh, he I might. <laughs> bet he will. Okay. So, um, okay. Here, here, this is a question I really want to know. So what, also is unique about this book, you know, you're an established writer, you have a lot of credibility and you approach popular culture as I feel like you would, um, a very serious subject, maybe even an academic subject. And you treat it with respect, even though, you know, you can have fun when you read this book because there's lots of fun references, but how, why do you think of pop culture that way? You seem to think it's like, of significant value in our lives. Mm -hmm. 
I think that pop culture is very much, it does two things as most culture does. Um, it drives the conversation and it drives, it can drive the conversation, but it also reflects back to us what our preoccupations are. So I think that in examining and being really thoughtful about the choices that we make and the things that we love, um, we in turn get to be more thoughtful and introspective about who we are and how we interact with people, who we are as a community. I mean, if you're looking at something that everybody is really into, so say for the last uh, six months, everybody was talking about The White Lotus, right? The TV show with Jennifer Coolidge. And if we really think about what it is that we love about that show, um, then we start to understand ourselves a little better, and then we'll understand others a little better, right? So I think everybody let's just say in the time of COVID really liked the white Lotus because it was about vacation and fun times and all of that. But also because we're a society of cynics now, it can't be like that. There always has to be a murder. Like someone has to die. And I think too, that it says a lot about our sort of conflicted relationship with the idea of like luxury travel, how that works in terms of climate change. Um, and also like how that kind of stratification of like tourists versus, um, the people who work at a resort, these are all things that we all think about. And if we think about that a little more, we'd start to make, I think, better decisions just in general. Now I know, I mean, who doesn't love the white lotus? We talked about last time how much you liked it. Did the second season, was it as good for you? What did you think about the second season? Uh, the problem with the second season is, is that, you know, that there's always that nobody is what they seem. Cause that's what we learned uh, in the first season. So you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop with every single one of those storylines. And mm-hmm. then if the shoe didn't drop as dramatically as you imagined, you ended up getting a little bit disappointed. So I think that for me was a bit ruined that sense of like, Oh my God, there's more to this person. Right. And like, you know, like in White Lotus season one, when Armand, you know, starts taking a bunch of drugs and parties with the with his employees, that's like, oh, no, I can't believe he's doing that. But like in season two, whenever anybody did anything, I'm like, yeah, of course, because we're expecting uh, something outrageous to happen. So that was but I thought the White Lotus two was really funny. I I thought um, they gave Jennifer Coolidge a lot to, to work with, which I really enjoy because who doesn't love her? Yeah. And um, I really actually enjoyed Aubrey Plaza in it. She was quite a, she was a bit of a surprise to me. Her, her performance was really good. Yeah, it was, it was good. I also heard a reference. I heard the creator talk, Mike White. And one thing he was talking about his kind of what influenced him. And he said the prostitutes, he was for the prostitutes. He was influenced by Laverne and Shirley. Isn't that That's perfect. Actually, they were the best part of season two. The two, I, um, Italian I thought girls. they were great. His whole idea yeah. is they're working, working class girls that always find themselves in a bind or like crashing a wedding or, and, and that, I thought that was interesting. Like I, that I didn't, I wouldn't, you know, you can tell he has a lot of affection for them because they're the only characters in the entire season who get what they want. Ooh. Yeah. They're the only ones who get a happy ending. Everybody else does not. Okay. Now for more like serious question. You talk a lot. Okay. You talk about your relationship with memory. And I feel like this is a theme for you and a lot of your work. And, uh, you talk about, you lost your father when he was young and I think you were 12 and you said, um, you compare losing him 
for your love of pop culture. I might be wording this wrong, Mm -hmm. but basically you said there were layers to him. You knew him, but there was a lot you didn't know. There just wasn't time and you weren't old enough to ask these questions. And then you also have this kind of faraway love for famous people. Can you explain the parallel? Yeah. Yeah. So like with my father's memory, because I was a child when he died and I actually have very few memories of him being um, healthy because he was, he was uh, battling cancer for quite a number of years. Um, I think that there's a, a lot of distance between me and the real person who was my father, both in terms of time, but also memory. And I think that that distance is parallel to the distance that is actually between me and a famous person. Like the distance between me and Keanu Reeves is vast. Clearly I don't know him and he doesn't know me. And yet, I create these sort of like really rich um, emotional connections with the famous people. In the same way, I have had to create a kind of relationship with my father because there wasn't one, not really, beyond, you know, like what he he gave me as much as he could in the time that he had. But I, there wasn't, I still don't really know if what I remember about him are memories at all or if they're stories or what, like I, it's really hard to know. And there is almost no point in trying to separate those things anyway. I mean, it is what it is, right? Um, okay, so another thing you m- mentioned, uh, I, of course, along with everyone else, loved the Joy Luck Club when it came out. And you talk about that critically. I think you maybe soften on it later in your life, but you say, for better or for worse, um, this the Joy Luck Club was how non-Chinese people learned about your culture. And it was the version of Chineseness the English-speaking world was ready to accept. Can you explain, I guess, first of all, the popularity of that movie? It was a huge, huge uh, movie and book were both huge. Like the Amy, like Joy Luck Club was a hu- huge bestseller. Like for a debut book from an unknown author, it was... Oh, she was a debut author. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, she was a debut author and she got paid... $50,000 for it at the time, which is actually quite a lot for 1989 or whatever year it was that she sold it. Um, and I think she, it was something like hundreds of weeks on the New York times bestseller list, like no joke. And it was a, it was a huge book. Um, and the movie was also like hugely popular. So, I mean, I think that the popularity of, of the book in the movie really rides on the what I would call emotional melodrama, and that, that is not a, a a dig at Amy Tan. The there is the emotions there are quite melodramatic, um, sort of uh, relationships between mother and daughter, between friends, um, all of that. Um, and I think that people love tragic stories <laughs> about families, and that's what that's what the Joy Luck Club actually is at its core. That's what it is, and I think that at that time, added to that dimension were things like the second world war in China, which uh, most of the Western world didn't really know about, um, or add to that, um, you know, um, just a tiny bit of, I'm using air quotes, quote unquote, exoticism. And like the sort of cracking of the code, I think that Chinese culture was, uh, what's the word kind of, um, not comprehensible by the Western world for quite a long time, that there were barriers to understanding what our culture was like the Mahjong tiles confused people, the chopsticks confused people. Um, the sort of commitment to the family unit also really seemed to confuse people. So I think that the toilet club opened that up a little bit, you know, like, Hey, Mahjong's just like gin rummy. It's just with tiles and not cards. So, you know, like all this other stuff. And that's great. 
And I think that when you're the first one, because I think that the Joilette Club truly was the really the first sort of like uh, pop cultural phenomenon featuring mainly Asian, um, uh, mainly Asian characters with really Asian themes and Chinese specifically. Um, when you're the first one, you're always going to be the one most open to criticism. You're always going to be the one that is going to be uh, thought of as archetypes or stereotypes. And I think that I don't envy Amy Tan's position there. And I think I do, though, 100% respect what she did. There is no me without an Amy Tan, like truly. So then there was an, another um, a scene you talk about is the tea ceremony in Karate Kid 2. And <laughs> And I thought that was really, um, I thought that was really interesting. You talk about the actress Tamlin Tamita, who is a Asian actress and she's in the second Karate Kid and you saw her and she's, I, I looked her up. I, I didn't remember her. She's very beautiful and you saw a representation, but then there's the scene and you were young. You can tell me how old you were, but you had, you were, didn't totally like what you were seeing and you were uncomfortable, but you didn't really know why at the time. So can you explain the kind of mixed feelings you had about the way this actress was portrayed or her role? Yeah, I should say Talon Tamita is also in the Joy Luck Club and also, (laughs) yeah, she is. She plays Waverly in the Joy Luck Club. She's the one who throws the roll of condoms in the air and says, what do you have to say about this, mom? Anyway, she's also in, she's occasionally in Cobra Kai, which is the Karate Kid sort of sequel that's on Netflix. I think it's Netflix. And um, anyway, so I would have been about 10 or 11 when Karate Kid 2 came out. And um, she's Ralph Macchio's love interest. And she was super cute. Like they were teenagers at the time. And um, there's a scene where she serves him um, green tea and she does the tea ceremony where she whisks it and then pours it. But if you watch the scene, you'll notice she only pours it for him. She doesn't pour any for herself. Um, and then at the end, she kisses him by you know, undoing the bun in her hair. Because I guess when you undo your bun, it means you want to kiss somebody. I don't know. <laughs> and, and then she kisses him. And like, at like 10 or 11 years old, I didn't like the kissing part, probably. Right. Um, and that was, you know, uncomfortable for me. But it was also that sort of like overly performative um, uh, sort of uh, sign of her Japanese-ness in her case that I found really uncomfortable. Because like as, you know, an Asian-Canadian kid, we didn't perform things like that for people. Like, that's not what you do. Like, you know, like when my, when my niece just got married this past summer, she had a traditional um, Chinese tea ceremony at her wedding reception. That's when you do these things. Like you, you're not, you're not doing this because you want to like seduce some kid. Like I, I just, it was just really a lot. And at that time, the discomfort was with the, was with the performance of the ritual, but also with the kissing and how those two things in that one scene are like tangled up together, which means, so uh, what is it that Ralph Macchio or the character, I can't remember his actual name in the, in the movie. Uh, what is it that Ralph Macchio is attracted to? Is he attracted to her as a person or is he attracted to the, uh, the markers of what I would call Asian fetish? And you talk a lot about that in the book at very, I mean, the thing about this book, okay, that goes into, you are incredibly open in this book. Is this the most open you've ever been in your writing? Or your poetry is like that too. Yeah, my poetry is a bit like that. But you know, with poetry, it's 
it's um You're not sure what it means. Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, truly. <laughs> well, that's because I find poetry hard. But poetry, like, it could mean this or it could mean that. Where poetry you're... is obscured by many things. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, what is that like? I mean, I you're you seem like a pretty open person, but how did you make those choices? And are there like what to hold back and what to put in? And I mean, it makes it it's what makes the book. Like, I don't feel like you're holding back at all, but what is that like to do that as an author? Um, I think early on when I started writing it, I actually had a couple of things that I knew I would never write about. And Mm -hmm. they are, you know, the most obvious one that I talked about before is that I'm not, wasn't going to talk about my marriage uh, because my ex-husband and I share a child and for me anyway, and this is different for everybody, the last place my child needs to read about his parents' marriage that failed is in a book. Like, that's not, I'd rather have the conversation with my child myself. Um, and also, in fairness, my ex-husband and I have a good co-parenting relationship. We're friends. This is not, like, I have, I have no interest in exposing his dirty right. laundry. Not that he has any, actually. He's a very ethical guy. But um, there's that. And then there are a couple of other things I didn't want to write about. So, and I never did. So that was really uh, important to set. I think for every uh, writer who's going to attempt a memoir, setting those boundaries early on is really important. However, when you set those boundaries, that also means that whatever you do choose to write about, you're going to have to do it really as fully as you can. Um, There is no way not to. You're not writing a memoir to just like say something really vaguely and then move on because that's not what the reader ever wants. The reader always wants to know more. Um, so yeah, the process is, some of it's easier than others. I think writing about my childhood was much easier because it's a long time ago. I think that, uh, writing about anything recent was tough. Like, you know, you're writing about it oftentimes before you've had a chance to process it emotionally, which is the, which is a really actually hard position to be in. Um, okay. And then I want to talk about your mom. Um, (laughs) yeah, so that you have a well, like many of us, you have a complex relationship with your mom. Not everyone has that, but how did you, um, now you're a parent and you kind of talk a bit about, you talk a lot about your son and not, not specific ways, but you know, your day-to-day as a parent and then your day-to-day as a kid. What, how are you doing things differently this time around or what? Yeah. I, I mean, like as a mother, you mean? Yes. As a mother. Oh, I'm so much more permissive than my mother was. There is like, no. I, the one thing that I really feel that, you know, we all have, none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect mothers uh, or parents or whatever, or perfect daughters for that matter. But um, when my son was born, I, I really made a conscious effort to always sort of honor the child that he is rather than try to make him into the child that I wanted him to be. So I think for my mom, she really wanted her daughters to fit into a certain kind of mold. And that was largely driven by the fact that she wanted us to be safe and secure in a, in a world where, you know, having a lot of daughters is not safety and security. is not always guaranteed for them. Um, so, which I understand, but for me, I, I, I really just want to, uh, help my child become the best version of who he truly is. That's it. And if he doesn't want to play soccer, I mean, I wish he'd get more exercise, but like, also it's fine. (laughs) He takes art classes instead. It's fine. (laughs) And do you feel that you have to, um, 
explain that to other members of your family or are they, is it just, it's a different time now? No, I don't think so. My sisters and I, our parenting styles are almost exactly the same, which is really hilarious to me because they're, it's very much unlike our parents. Um, so I had a therapist one time say to me, where did you learn to be a good mom? If your, your parents were like this, or if your mother was like this. And I, and I said, well, from my sisters, right? So my older sisters had started having children when I was a teenager because they're quite a lot older than I am. And I got to babysit their kids. I got to, I spent so much time with those kids when I was young and with them when they were young families. And I learned so much from watching my sisters really try to be a better mother than my mother was. And, um, truly like, uh, no, we all kind of all parents same. It's fine. um okay and I I wanted to end by asking what what are your current like today pop cultural obsessions and what what are you into right now I mean okay here's the thing uh there are people who are very famous like the the Kim Kardashians of the world Uh and then there are people who are just kind of like internet famous and they're just kind of famous among, uh, uh, among a certain like celebrity watcher, meaning me. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give you internet famous. I'm very into what is ever was happening with Paul Mescal. Do you, I don't know if you remember him. He was in Normal People. Do you know the no. novel Normal People by Sally yeah, Rooney? And yes, then, I know the novel. Yeah. So they made it into like a, uh, I think it was like a limited series, television yeah. series or streaming. I think it was streaming. And uh, Paul Mescal was engaged to, <laughs> this is so obscure, musician uh, named Phoebe Bridgers, who you might also know because she was one of the people who came forward and tried to sue Ryan Adams for sexual harassment, the singer Ryan Adams, not Brian Adams, Ryan Adams. Okay. And anyway, they were engaged. Appears it's over because she's been seen around town with a comedian named Bo Burnham. And Paul Mescal has been seen with Saoirse Ronan now. Saoirse Whoa. Ronan being, yeah. <laughs> so it's like an Irish thing made in heaven. Um that but then also like i'm i'm quite interested in um uh what kanye west is going to do what uh how and see the the reason i'm interested in that is actually it's not because i have an invested emotional interest in kanye west i don't or yay as he is called now it's it's because um famous white men get get opportunity and opportunity for second and third and fourth chances Mm. all the time Mm-hmm. Now, I really want to know if the culture is going to give Ye another chance. I'm curious. Oh, interesting. And if you're going to give someone like Brad Pitt or Johnny Depp or Louis C.K. or any of those guys a second chance, will Ye get one? I don't know. And I, I'm really curious to find out. I have no, I have no feelings either way because what he, he's done, he said some terrible things. Um, but I, I would really like to know if the machine that is going to get Johnny Depp back on track is also in motion for a Kanye West. Did you see the interview with David Letterman that he did? Um, a few years uh, ago? Yeah. Did you see that? No, I didn't see it. Um, I, had sympathy after I listened to it because I could see there was clearly mental health issues. Mm-hmm. But like I never thought of it like that. I just thought he, I mean, of course there is, but when you hear him speak, you can see he's just really tortured, like in a, I don't know, made me feel a little bit. Well, I, I have some thoughts behind that because like one of the books I've acquired for ECW Press in my day job, is a book, a memoir, and an examination of how 
mental health is treated, especially with women, um, you know, how we treat people with mental illness. And um, our my author, she's not my author, the author, KJ Ayala, who's great, uh, she writes the Gold Mail and stuff. She also has bipolar disorder, right, which is what Ye has. And the way she describes bipolar disorder, you could not, he could not be more someone with bipolar disorder, you know, and I, and I'm thinking like all of this sort of like sympathy and empathy I have for KJ, who I really enjoy and is a really great writer and is a really good, great person. Um, will that be extended by the world at large for Ye? Don't know. Um, okay. What are you working on now? Cause you, I, I was, when I was researching you for this, I, you, you write all the time. I don't. I actually don't. Well, I don't know what's going on. Oh, look what I found, by the way. We're on, not on video, but I yeah. was picking up my bookshelves for the new year, and I found your first book. Uh, you, got, you even got a hardcover. That's intense. I, I can't remember. Well, it says I got it at Book Warehouse, but I can't remember if it was a gift or what uh, I bought it, but I haven't read it yet. So now I'm excited because I'm doing oh. like shop my shelves yeah cleaned out my books and anyway there's that but go for it (laughs) what are you working on now uh I'm almost finished a horror novel uh so we're just almost finished that I had so what happened was is it 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 uses a lot of like um Asian demonology and yeah like from Hong Kong and Taiwan and stuff and I there's a section of it where um, I I use some of the demonology from the Philippines. So I just had it out for sensitivity read with a Filipina uh, Canadian writer I know, and she did a great sensitivity read on it. So I got to, I got to incorporate her feedback because she was great. Precious de Leon. If you're, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for your help. Um, So yeah. (laughs) That's great. Okay. Well, Thank you so much for coming on. That was a lot of fun. And um, the book, again, is Super Fan, and it's out now. So, yay. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Amy. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks so much, Jen, for coming on the podcast to discuss Super Fan. I had a lot of fun talking about pop culture and then more serious topics. And I think that's exactly what this book is like. In fact, I would say... Uh, The book is more a memoir uh, about her life and struggles growing up as the child of immigrant parents and losing her father quite young. Um, And then also how um, pop culture was really a life raft for her and how she loved it and reviled it at times. So I highly recommend it. Um, Now, uh, I wanted to end with a new feature that I would like to include in the podcast. I have a new voicemail icon that you can click on off my website at redfernbookreview.com or you can also go on Instagram and you can find links there to it. And what I'm trying to do, um, a podcast is a one-way medium and I'd like to change that by including feedback and questions from you. So you can go on there and leave me a voicemail. You can ask me anything. You could ask me what books do you recommend? For a certain of a certain genre or for your book club or you could tell me some things that you're loving right now that you're reading um things you really like about the podcast or ways I could improve so check that out and I would love to hear from you okay so thanks again for listening bye <laughs>